Thank you for your warm welcome. It's really good to be with you all today. If you could uh, turn back, if you have a Bible, to Philippians 3. And uh, while you're doing that, we'll just uh, commit our time to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning that if we are in Christ, then our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in Him. What a a release, what a freedom this is for us. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you will remind us of this again in this passage that we're going to look at, Lord. Speak to us through it, open our hearts and minds, bless us, and uh, be with us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. I'm sure uh, at least some of you here have watched The Apprentice on BBC One. It's been running about, I think, nearly 20 years now. It's got a very simple premise. There are 16 ruthless businessmen and businesswomen, and they are in this very stress-filled, dog-eat-dog environment to earn the grand prize of Lord Sugar's £250,000 investment. And uh, at the beginning, they come across as very confident, and they, on the very first show, they do this thing where they big themselves up and they make these outlandish claims that the things that are going to help them win. And they, they come up with some classics. So I, I wrote a few of them down here. Everything I touch turns to sold. Business is the new rock and roll, and I'm Elvis Presley. And then, I'm like a cash machine. If you push the right buttons, I will make you money. <laughs> There's no claim they won't make. And they do come across as very cocky, And very self-confident. And of course, what happens? It doesn't take long and um, they're booted out. They're given the the firing uh, card and their confidence is shown to be hot air. And and we all laugh and we rather enjoy it. It's good fun. But here's the thing. The truth of the matter is that most people in life are putting their confidence in someone or something. Intelligence, career, financial security family, friends, good looks, charm. Perhaps some of us here are are putting confidence in those things. But the question is, is that confidence misplaced? Confidence is the theme of this lovely passage in Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11. Now, Philippians has been described as a love letter from Paul to the church at Philippi. It's a very intimate letter. It's full of warmth, full of love, full of joy. Although, of course, when Paul wrote it, his own circumstances were far from joyful because he was in chains, probably in Rome, and he didn't know how long he had left. And yet Paul's confidence wasn't in his circumstances or his innate charm or ability. For all his suffering, Paul is a confident man because he's confident in Christ. And this is what Paul wants for his readers and for us, because Paul realized that confidence was in danger of being snatched away. Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 3, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil. Now it's a rather abrupt, unpleasant change of tone in an otherwise very warm, loving letter, but with good reason. Trouble is on the horizon. Now, for the moment, Paul merely says, watch out, because clearly these men who do evil haven't yet arrived in Philippi, but it's only a matter of time. And Paul knew that their arrival could be devastating, 
Because these nameless people, they were advocating a false gospel. Now, if I was to just summarize what Paul is saying to the Philippians in this passage, it would go something like this. There are some people coming to your city, and they want to make you religious. They want you to place your confidence in ritual and in right, but their way is the way of the flesh. It's the way of despair. It's the way of death. Don't go that way. These people cannot give you anything to match what you already possess. All they can do is steal your joy and your assurance. Don't let them. Now that's the the nub of this passage really. What is the Christian's confidence to be found in? Who is it that saves us? What are we saved by? This really is about the gospel. And we're never so mature as believers that we need to get beyond the gospel, are we? This is a very important passage for us. I'm going to very simply divide it up into two. And the first half of this passage concerns misplaced confidence. Now these nameless evil men and women are busy placing their confidence in a lot of outward things. But one thing in particular, verse 2, Paul labels them as mutilators of the flesh. Now it's a rather graphic reference, isn't it? But it refers to the very respectable practice of circumcision. So if you remember from the time of Abraham onwards, circumcision was required of all male Jews and any man who wanted to convert to Judaism. It was the outward mark of belonging to God. It was the Old Testament covenantal sign. Now, as a Jew, Paul had been circumcised. And there was nothing wrong, per se, with any Christian man being circumcised if he so wished. It wasn't an evil thing. But neither was it a necessity. In fact, even though it had been required in the Old Testament, even then, people recognized that circumcision alone wasn't enough. Circumcision was merely an outward sign. And uh, the law and the prophets spoke about it. They talked of circumcision of the heart, spiritual renewal within a person, God's law written in their hearts. Now, these evil people that Paul is speaking of, they were obsessed with the outward, with the sign, with the ritual, not the reality. And they'd made it their mission to infiltrate Christian churches to pervert the gospel, to insist upon the primacy of Judaism and particularly circumcision. So that was their big thing. Now they were probably the same people that we read about in Acts 15 or in the letter of Galatians. People who were known as Judaizers. Not that these people would have called themselves Judaizers. They'd have probably referred to themselves as as a rather grander name, something like the circumcision. Because you see, for them, salvation wasn't about Christ alone. Their gospel was Christ plus. So Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus the works of Judaism, dietary laws, special days, and so on. And it it is the kind of thing that is very popular in every age, even ours, because... At the heart of it is the idea of a person working and achieving their salvation in some way. You know, do this easily attainable outward thing that everyone can see 
in order to be saved. And human beings love to be able to make a contribution, don't they? We love having something to bring to the table. You know, whether it's baptism, or church membership, or it's a missionary endeavors, or charitable works, whatever it is, we love the outward. And that's why circumcision in its day, and the works of Judaism, were so dangerous. Because they were so appealing, humanly speaking. And it was all the more dangerous because it seemed orthodox. It wasn't like these people were going, Jesus isn't the Son of God, you don't have to believe in him. Of course they weren't saying that. It would have been a bit obvious, wouldn't it? They were saying, yes, yes, by all means, believe in Jesus, trust him for salvation, but also you need to tick these boxes too. Do this other stuff. And therefore, this popular, seemingly orthodox gospel was a false gospel because it was Christ plus. Because you see, to add anything to Christ or or to place other things on a level pegging with Christ, worthy of equal trust, it's a false gospel. And you know, it's a futile gospel as well because it's trusting in outward things that can't stand the weight of your trust. These Judaizers were glorifying the outward sign. They were making it the be-all and the end-all. As I said, circumcision was never meant to be something to trust in, just as baptism isn't, just as church membership isn't, just as the Lord's Supper isn't. All these people were doing was achieving the mutilation of their own flesh, as well as eternal damnation in the future. Because at the last judgment, Jesus will say to such people, I never knew you, and you never knew me. Now, this is why Paul very pointedly calls them dogs. Now, I I guess this has never really been considered a term of endearment, has it? But this isn't just a random insult thrown out by Paul. It is very much more pointed than that. You see, dogs were considered unclean by the Jews, and Jews often referred to Gentiles as dogs. And yet these Judaizers, who were so obsessed with making other people clean through circumcision, were themselves unclean. Because they wanted to enter heaven on their own terms, by their own rules, not through Christ. And so they were dogs. And they were excluded from the fellowship of believers. Now, I guess if someone called you a dog, you wouldn't take it lying down, would you? And... I imagine if the Judaizers had heard this or read this, they would have been highly offended and their heckles would have risen and they would have then done what they were very good at and dismissed Paul by bigging themselves up. That's what they always did. They bigged themselves up and they would have said, well, we're men of God, okay? You know, we love the law of Moses and we keep the law. So we have a lot of grounds for confidence here. And yet, in verses 4 to 6, Paul, in effect, says, well, I'm one step ahead of you. Because if you think you're confident about outward things, what about me? You've got nothing on me. You see, Paul had once been the arch-Judaizer. So if natural achievement or outward rule-keeping, if those are the things to be confident in for salvation... Well, Paul had more grounds for confidence than anyone else. And uh, in verses 5 and 6, Paul lists 
seven of his own achievements. So number one, in accordance with the stipulations of the law, Paul had been circumcised on the eighth day. So as early as it was legally possible to do it. Number two, Paul is a native Israelite. Number three, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's pure blood. He belongs to an authentic Jewish family. He can trace his lineage all the way back. Number four, he's a Hebrew. He's not a Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jew. So there's no doubt about his respectability. Now, of course, we could have said those four things about many Jews in the day and age that Paul lived in. But on top of all that, Paul had even more credentials. Number five, he's a Pharisee. He's got an impeccable education, knowledge of the law of Moses. Number six, he's a zealous Pharisee. He even persecuted the Christian church and went to great lengths to defend the honor of his God. And then number seven, Paul was a high achiever. He was faultless in his adherence to the law. So if you like, Paul was the creme de la creme. In the language of the BBC's The Apprentice, Paul is saying to the Judaizers, look, if you think you're going to get Alan Sugar's investment, think again. I've got far more grounds for confidence than you have. So the point is, if God's criteria is outward law-keeping and ritual and natural advantages, well, Paul would have been the first in line. But of course, that would be misplaced confidence. Confidence in the flesh. Oh yeah, compared to the average person, Paul was impressive, wasn't he? Most people didn't possess his incisive mind, his grasp of the law, his moral discipline, his bloodline and lineage, Almost everyone pale compared to Paul. And yet set against the perfection and the righteousness of God, who's perfect, how did Paul look in himself? What does the natural goodness of any one of us look like in the presence of the holy and righteous God? And we know the answer. It's filthy rags. Dirty, moth-eaten clothes. It's not good enough for God. It's not good enough for his heaven. There's an oft-used phrase nowadays, virtue signaling. And people, particularly politicians, love to say the right thing or do the right thing to be thought of as good. And it tends to work down here, but it doesn't work with God. So if you're trusting in gift, or your experience, or your respectability in this church, or in acts of charity or general good works. I'm afraid you're trusting in the flesh. And however good, however moral you look, compared to your fellow man, and you might look pretty good, God looks and he just sees filthy rags. And of course, Paul knew this. He knew it full well. Because having sort of brandished his human CV and read out his list of attainments and achievements... He then, as it were, rips it up and throws it on the floor. And he says in verse 7, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now the word for loss was actually in the original a rather vulgar word which referred to excrement or dung. 
I think you probably know the kind of word I'm thinking of. I won't share it here in the pulpit. The politest way I could put it is, whatever was to my profit, I now consider filth. Dirty, smelly garbage, fit for the dogs to rummage through. Fit for those Judaizers. So all the things that the Judaizers thought were such positive advantages, Paul says, no, I'm sorry, they're a dead loss. If you put your confidence in them and trust them for salvation, you will be shut out of God's heaven and you will be destined for hell, which is the greatest loss anyone can ever suffer. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, I took um, the family to a summer fair. We've got quite a few of these summer fairs in Shropshire. And uh, as part of the event, there were some competitive races for the kids, you know, the egg and spoon race and the, the sack race. And then at the end, the, the parents were invited to come up and do the 80-meter the sprint. And uh, in an act of hubris, I decided that although I'd been in the cake tent about 20 minutes earlier, and I hadn't warmed up, and my last competitive race was probably sometime in the 20th century, I thought I'd have a go, because I used to be quite quick when I was 10. So I set off, and um, I was a bit slow out of the blocks, admittedly, but I was catching up, and I could see the leader, and I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm in the medal places here, I'm gaining. And uh, unfortunately, I pushed myself a bit too hard. And I suddenly realized that my legs were going so fast, I had no control over them. And then I stopped being able to feel my legs, and then I fell flat on my face with a big heavy thump um, short of the finish line, although my son believes that I dived over the finish line. I'm not sure that I did, um, and I did my shoulder in, and I need some physio. Um, and uh, my, my ego, I think, was damaged more than anything else. But here's the thing. That is what will happen to any of us here if we are trusting solely in our own efforts. We're not going to reach the finish line. We will fall short and we won't enter heaven. But now let's listen to the antidote. Paul says, I happily lay all my human achievements on the rubbish tip for the sake of Christ. This is secondly about true confidence, gospel confidence. Confidence placed fair and square in the Lord Jesus Christ. The holy, righteous, perfect Son of God. The one who satisfied both God's demands for justice and God's demands for a perfect life. When he laid down his life on the cross of Calvary as our substitute for our sins. Paul's salvation wasn't because of any of those good things he'd done. It was despite those things. You see, Paul realized that all the things that others would have said were good could have stopped him from trusting Jesus and had given him a misplaced confidence. But amazingly, by God's grace, Paul had been brought kicking and screaming to the end of himself and to the foot of the cross. And this hate-filled religious bigot, this fundamentalist, who deserved judgment, who'd persecuted Christ, he was saved. Not by his own works, but by God's grace, God's unmerited favor, by the power of Jesus Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And so Paul doesn't look back with any pride, 
But get this, the what is more in verse 8 also refers to everything Paul had done for the Lord since he was saved. And remember, Paul had done a lot. We've just started in our church going through the book of Romans. And it was written a few years before Philippians, and it's an extraordinary letter. You know, it's a theological masterpiece. And quite apart from his letters and his writings, Paul was a, a, a courageous missionary. And he was a church planter. He was a powerful preacher. He was a great man. And yet Paul says, all of that, everything, everything I've done in my Christian life is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost these things. So he's quite insistent. His confidence is not in his old works of the flesh, and it's not in his new works of the Spirit. It's in Jesus Christ alone. By faith, he leans with all his might and with all his weight upon the Lord. Now, I remember when I was a teenager having a really long bath, and I felt a bit groggy, so I thought, I better get out of this bath now. So I, I got out, and I was feeling a bit tired, so I leant on the wash basin, which was next to the bath, to help myself up. And the wash basin cracked. Don't tell my parents this. And I don't know if it was because I'm incredibly strong, or it was because I was incredibly overweight, or the, way, the wash basin was just a little bit... Um, not very sturdy. I don't know. I wouldn't want to speculate. But to be honest, it's a picture of earthly crutches, isn't it? Earthly crutches cannot stand the weight. But Christ can. Christ can take the weight. At Calvary, he took the weight of the sins, the failures of everyone who trusts him. And faith rests in that once-for-all work, Christ's perfect life that we could never have lived and his atoning death that we should have died, that we deserve to die. Christ took it all, and his work doesn't need repeating. It doesn't need adding to. It is sufficient, and it simply requires on our part our complete surrender and trust in the Savior, what he's done. So if you want assurance of your faith, it's found in Christ and him alone. And in him, you will be confident forever. We're going to close with a lovely hymn, which talks about the kind of confidence that you can have. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's what it means to be confident in Christ. I think it's these kinds of truths which are forefront in Paul's mind as he's writing. And I think it's why he starts this very sobering section in verse 1 with something very different. He says at the very beginning of this section, rejoice in the Lord. You see, the Judaizers tended to prey on existing vulnerabilities. They knew that in a church where there were already doubts and jealousy and rivalry and selfish ambition and discontent, well, their message would be a lot more effective. You see, when a Christian is dissatisfied with who they are and their confidence is shot to pieces and they're trying to big themselves up, well, when a winsome person comes along and says, well, just do this extra thing. 
to make sure that you're saved? Well, they're likely to listen to them. And we know from earlier on in the letter of Philippians that there was a lot of bickering, a lot of disunity in the church at Philippi. But you see, if the Philippians really were rejoicing in the gospel truth, reveling in the love of Jesus, well, they wouldn't have paid any heed, would they, to the negative, man-centered teaching of the Judaizers. They'd see it for what it was. Christians who are secure and joyful in their faith have no need for human validation or for a list of achievements. And there's a lot to be joyful about. The Judaizers, remember, talked about themselves as the circumcision. They were proud of the name. They owned the name. They were true Jews. But Paul says in verse 3, do you know, it's we who are the circumcision. It's we who worship by the Spirit of God. It's we who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. And it's not a royal we. Paul is speaking for all true believers. These Judaizers, they can self-mutilate all they want. Paul says that me and the Philippian believers and every one of us, if we're a Christian here, we're the true circumcision, which is to say we are God's covenant people, chosen of God, heirs of all the Old Testament promises, destined for eternal glory. Paul speaks of the resurrection of the dead, which was a rather dim hope. For the Old Testament Jews. But it's a reality and a sure and certain one. Because of Christ's resurrection. And this is what lies ahead for every Christian. The cross first. Suffering in Christ. But then the glory. And the glory will far outweigh the suffering. We are a people ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Great reasons for joy. And you know joy is the true mark of belonging to Christ. Not an outward sign like circumcision or baptism. Not church membership. No rite, no ritual. But joy. Deep contentment in who I am in Christ and what Christ has done for me. It's a joy that refuses to look inward for validation or to other people or to circumstances but just looks upwards to Christ. That kind of joy is a powerful witness to the unbelieving world. I don't think there's anything that quite speaks of Christ like the joy of a believer who has very little in this world and yet they possess Christ. It's another worldly kind of joy. And you know, the joyless, discontent Christian dishonors Christ and dishonors their witness in this world. Joy is ours in Christ, but joy can be stolen away by false teaching, but also by our own attitudes of heart. It is so easy to be drawn away from Christ and sucked into measuring your Christian walk against other Christians. And initially, if you do that, you will find that there are believers in this church who don't measure up to you. And you'll find plenty of things you can be confident in. I'm a better Christian. I'm more committed, and so on and so forth. But in the end, there's always going to be someone who's better than you. They've done more than you. They've been on the mission field. They've led thousands of people to Christ. They've published books. They lead huge churches. They're more loving and patient than you. They're kinder than you. 
and you realize they're a better person than me. Your faith pales and suddenly your self-confidence collapses and you think, I'm not much of a Christian. My faith is so weak and in place of your misplaced confidence comes anger, loathing, despair. And there's a better way. When we see other believers as fellow family members, brothers and sisters in Christ, not rivals, when we stop thinking of ourselves in terms of what we do, but of who we are in Christ, and when we look to Him and away from ourselves, and when we fan the flames of our faith by seeking Christ in His Word, in prayer, as we gather in the fellowship of believers, these are means of grace, and when we forget them or neglect them or don't prioritize them, we lose our joy. But when we turn to Christ, we safeguard our joy. And when we're focused on Him, whatever the trouble, there is fullness of joy. The world won't understand it, but you will experience it. Now, I know that um, you're going to be looking at Lamentations in the next few weeks. And uh, it's traditionally held that Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah, if this is indeed the case, wrote some very, very heartbreaking words as he looked out across the valley at the smoking ruin of a once great city, Jerusalem, destroyed. And as he saw his countrymen being led away to Babylon in captivity, he writes, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. And yet, even amidst all that doom and gloom, Jeremiah can go on to say, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, remarkable words, aren't they? Even though Jeremiah's home had been destroyed, his people had been carried away, all the good things in his life had been ripped out, and yet there was something better than good at the very center of Jeremiah's life that could never be ripped out. Jeremiah had a relationship with God. The covenant Lord had set his everlasting love upon Jeremiah and commissioned him and called him and protected him. And so Jeremiah was able to weigh up all the loss against the gain of knowing God. And the scales tipped heavily in God's favor. The sweet outweighed the bitter. For all Jeremiah's suffering, knowing God, it was better than anything else. And that is exactly Paul's perspective here, isn't it? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So you've got two men, Jeremiah and Paul, separated by 600 or so years of history. And yet they've got the same perspective. That knowing God and being known by God is truly unique and awesome and it's an otherworldly joy. A joy far greater than any earthly happiness or any earthly sorrow. Now, it's not really a joy that is easy to explain 
or to describe. It needs to be felt, not explained. But the, uh, the 17th century theologian Thomas Brooks had quite a good go. And he expresses it in this wonderful, poetic way. Just listen to these words. A man that has God for his portion is the rarest and happiest man in the world. He's like the morning star in the midst of the clouds. He's like the moon when it is full. He's like the flower of the roses in the spring of the year. He's like the lilies by the springs of waters. He's like the branches of frankincense in the time of summer. He's like a vessel of gold that is set about with all manner of precious stones. That's the joy that withstands even the darkest storm. And it's not just for special kinds of Christians. It's for all Christians. Each one of us here, if we're trusting in Christ, it is the mark of confident faith, focused in and on Christ. And I simply want to end there. And we, I pray that the Lord will help each of us to guard against anyone or anything that might steal that kind of joy and that assurance. And I pray that the Lord will help each of us to guard our own hearts against self-centeredness and fleshly attitudes that focus within and cause us to despair. And I pray that the Lord will help all of us to be able to say from our hearts with joy and to really mean it, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Amen. Amen. And I hinted at it very unsubtly there. That's our final hymn, In Christ Alone.
Heavenly Father, we, we ask for your forgiveness, Lord, when we put our hope and our trust in things that are not you. Lord, help us day to day, Lord, remember that our confidence is in you, not in what we've done or we're trying to do. Lord, but we pray that we be reminded that everything we have, everything that's important is through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.